0: everyone, welcome back to the Left Page. I am Frank, your always online historian, academic, writer, and today we're doing, once again, something a little bit different. Uh, I'm here today with a very special guest uh, to talk about not just one great book, but two, and a lot more than just that, like some pretty interesting questions and even a genre, so to speak. I am here today with brilliant researcher and academic uh, Maeva Chargros to talk a bit about Nordic Noir with two excellent examples, uh, Henning Mankel's uh, Before the Frost and Stieg Larsson's first book of the Millennium series, uh, which uh, have a bunch of different titles depending on the translation, but we'll get to that. Welcome, Maeva.
1: Thank you. Thank you for watching. Inviting me to do this, I'm glad that I get to share a bit about about this topic of Nordic Noir that really is something that I dived into um, years ago, uh, over 10 years ago now. So yeah, um, I'm technically uh, a historian in Czech nationalism, technically end of 19th century, beginning of 20th century, but Nordic noir is (laughs) also another topic that I look into. So yeah, I I especially look into uh, elements of folklore and genre uh, and gender and yeah, all that. (laughs) How gender is represented and we'll see with the the examples I picked that uh, this topic especially is quite at the center of
0: those i'm very curious to hear more about those two absolutely just as a heads up because of these books and the the issues we're going to talk about lots of content warnings for violence in some sense mutilation and sexual assault quite intensely we're not going to get too graphic but just be aware be careful that uh, these are very prominent in the books they are Quite, at least in Stieg Larsson's, uh, very graphic, uh, so do be warned. But those are some aspects we're going to touch, if only in terms of discussion and talking about them. But yeah, I I, I reached out to my after the the lecture that she did on Romancing the Gothic because it's on Nordic Noir as a as an introduction to very as an introduction to the books, to these books and to lots of different authors, uh, both these two and many others. But because I, as I was mentioning uh, just a, a few moments ago, I did a class on a detective literature and the, and the history of the, the detective novel. And even my, my teacher wasn't even knowledgeable or understood like academically speaking, uh, the Nordic Noir. Even, and this is an important point, even calling it like a Scandinavian noir, which it isn't. <laughs> but, and after we have lecture, I was like, yes, this is so cool. This is so interesting. And A way to get further into these books, these authors and these, the themes that they talk about. It. It's really interesting. So I, I also definitely recommend the lecture. It's on YouTube. I will have the links in the description. But yes, yeah, so very simple question. Uh, What is the Nordic Noir?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Very simple question, indeed. (laughs) Um, Well, I just spent one semester uh, talking about it one hour and a half per week. So I'll try to summarize all that (laughs) this time. Well, first of all, Nordic uh, means, of course, a, a specific set of countries. It's geographically very limited. It includes, um, of course, Norway, Sweden and Denmark, which is Scandinavia. These countries are called Scandinavian countries because they are linguistically close to each other. So this is the difference between Nordic and Scandinavian, even though many people around the world uh, use Scandinavia instead of Nordic. Nordic countries include Scandinavia, and then they also include Iceland, Finland, uh, Faroe Islands. And in my definition, I also tend to include Estonia because culturally it's very close, uh, especially in terms of literature and so on. There are lots of things in common with Finland, especially, or Sweden. So it makes sense for me to include them. However, then we end up with this controversy about whether Estonia is politically Nordic or not, but that's another issue. For the noir part, it's... Basically, it's a a term that was coined decades ago for cinema, actually, and photography mostly. So it's... It really has this this atmosphere of dark uh, areas with a lot of mist, fog, rain, you can see in terms of photography especially the neon signs of uh, places that are technically um, the bad areas let's say with in cities the areas where uh, the the fancy people would not want to go but the elites would not be uh, going to unless they have uh, some reasons to go there and they are forced to go uh, to go there but otherwise these are areas that they're not and that, that are not covered by by these people. And this is part of Nordic noir as well. The dark aspects of life, the dark corners in the cities and so on, and also uh, this opposition with the elite. So all that is uh, in this noir aspect. And of course, then in terms of cinema, it's, it was really something that Hollywood was into. So it was not it, there were lots of films that were high-budget films, it was not something like on the side, it's not a, a, on the margins in any way, whereas the, the style Nordic Noir has been on the margins for years before it became a thing in, in the early 2000s, but until then it was quite on the margins of literature and it's still considered as a subgenre of crime fiction in general, but then it's becoming so complex and developed that we might Consider it as a natural genre. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's kind of the summary of it. Uh, there is a lot of atmosphere aspect. But the theme is, of course, the murders, the um, crime investigation, and so on, but also all the other characters. And we're going to talk about two books that really show the importance of secondary characters as well. And yes, of course, the anti-hero aspect is very important. The heroes are never people that you right away find perfect and great and amazing. (laughs) They have lots (laughs) of flaws. Realistic in this way. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's really interesting to to talk about them and to talk about the subject because, well, I'm Brazilian, so we have a very particular and very well west and western filtered view of what Scandinavia and these Nordic countries are, and these novels these works show something that would be incredibly antithetical to that and quite it, it, it's surprising in a way, but what how it, the way we're what we're gonna talk about and the way your lecture did and and a lot of the issues there is that's like it's it relates and talks about issues that are there of course the fiction but these don't come from nothing yeah it was it is and still is quite surprising but it's really interesting to be able to understand a bit more about these some of the more complex dynamics of these societies and you know, they, they opened the door to further look into them, further research, further understanding. So and via fiction, which is really cool.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's it was the, the aim of those people I call the originals. I always call them the originals a bit like vampires because uh it's for me it's it, it's really linked like these two. So they were a couple, uh Cheval and Per and they they met, they, they fell in love, and the, the the thing that they decided to do with their life from the moment they met was to write crime novels, which is a couple project that might be a bit <laughs> surprising, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they decided to write those crime novels with something that was new. So so until let's say the fifties. Crime novels and crime fiction was all about, uh, you know, Hercule Poirot, and it was mostly happening in among the, the elites, or at the very least, the bourgeoisie, and really focusing on murders that happen for reasons that are related to a family, very narrow in terms of the, the people involved, their social background, uh, it was always the same, and I would even say it was always white, wealthy people from England uh, living in the countryside with huge houses and so on, and then someone is kidding someone else for the inheritance or something like that, or for other reasons that, um, that are um, mostly the margins of the story. The reasons are just explained at the end, and that's it. But they decided to do something completely different, which was to include more people with different backgrounds. And this was social critique, what is called social critique. So they decided to make it about the common people Mm -hmm. and to have workers working in in various um, construction work and Those uh, sailors, those we were not talking about, including also sex workers and so on. They started talking about these people that nobody wanted to hear about. Uh, But this was in parallel with the social welfare, the very famous uh, Nordic uh, welfare system being built from the 60s. And their first novel together was published in 1965 was the first of uh, Martin Beck uh, series called um, Rosanna, And I really recommend it uh, as well, but I I couldn't pick all books, but yeah. (laughs) But that would be the, the very classic Nordic noir, let's say. So that's the interesting part about those novels. It's not really about just the Nordic society that you would expect From what you might see in most films or read in most novels, you see a perfect society where everyone is being included and so on. But the truth is that, first of all, it took decades. And in the 50s, the Nordic countries were very racist, right-wing, even kind of Nazi still. We can't really say neo-Nazi. For our fifties, you know, so they were still kind of really using eugenism and so on, so it took a long way, and the murder of Olaf Pan, who was the prime minister of Sweden, uh, so yeah, it, it was not a happy, peaceful way, and we tend to overlook that. so Nordmar is kind of feeling that gap of explaining all that
0: <laughs> yeah that that makes a lot of sense there's a there's a real sense in especially in Larsson of a past coming back to haunt I mean that that happens in both of them but especially like a particular Swedish past that wasn't really handled up front which is a lot of these right-wing this nationalism this Nazism really that even from my perspective studying the subject before like it's it's something that definitely appears on the sidelines when it does, but it happened like there was a sort of and it's strange to talk in these terms a sort of receptiveness or there was a you know like like there were in other countries like that there was a very right wing like a fascist uh, movement here in Brazil like the Integralism and it, it happened in those countries too in a very direct and and physically close way. Yeah. And now, it, especially given this recent history and this particular image, it's something that is is—it is convenient for it to not be that present when talking about it, when considering the situation or the subject. So, I mean, as a historian, bringing the past back, it's uh, its definitely fun and important.
1: Yeah, yeah. This aspect of uh, Nazism being still present, it's still present nowadays in those countries. And yeah, both authors that we're going to talk about, they were both following a long tradition of being left-wing, for instance. So basically Nordic Moir is rooted in this consciousness of uh, popular classes and so on, but it's also rooted in the opposition to the right-wing parties and to fascism and Nazism and xenophobia and homophobia and all those It's really featuring characters that the typical average conservative Nordic person would really not like uh, even meeting in real life. And what I like is that these, these authors really did not just talk about what they were, about those topics. They were of course, writing about it, talking about it during press conferences and talks for their books and so on. But they were also activists. And this is something in Nordic noir that I find extremely interesting compared to most other crime fiction uh, writers. Crime fiction writers are uh, not that involved in their own topics. So I'm not saying that they committed murders, no, (laughs) but they actually took part in activities that really uh, meant a lot for them. So for instance, Henning Mankell was involved in lots of events related to uh, the conflict between Israel and Palestine, which is very timely, currently. He was on a boat that was stormed by Israeli forces because a nade. Uh, boat, so bringing food and so on to to Palestinians by the sea. That that's one way he was active. He was physically present there. Uh, it happened in 2010. If people want to check uh, what happened exactly, and then uh, Stig Larsson, I don't remember the the exact year, but he went to Africa and he was training groups of women to. Use weapons and to shoot and so on. And this could be seen as something weird, but actually, these women were part of a movement for, for freedom to free themselves from uh, colon- colonial powers and so on. So, <laughs> this shows how much, how involved they were. And many of them, the stories that they use come from their lives, come from what they actually saw or witnessed or experienced themselves and this gives a, a certain depth to their story basically it's not just a story you're reading read something they manage to really get you emotional and it's very hard to not be swallowed all in into this, these stories and and sometimes that's why it's very upsetting sometimes even because reading about topics that are really personal and emotional and sensitive and they are very good at making sure that you do not close the book and then move on you have to actually process what's happening and you end up thinking i should do something about it and this is very specific to nordic law in crime fiction
0: a very particular, especially these two, a very particular set of stories. Brilliant choices, by the way. <laughs> I can't recommend them enough. But you, you do need to process them. Because, well, yeah, the fiction, there is there are very strong rootings in actual history in a way that is very seamless. So, yeah, you even if you don't engage or don't want to engage as much with the fiction the history is still there haunting you it's very hard to not be affected by these stories or by these works or by this uh, by Nordic noir like this
1: yeah indeed and for instance the um, the the first book uh, before the frost by Henning Mankell whom by the way I've met I had the great chance to meet Henning Mankell once Uh, he died in 2015 from cancer and everyone knew that he had cancer he never he never hid it he was really open about it talking about how he he felt about it and how he was managing all that this shows also how how human (laughs) these people are Uh, they they don't want to live a perfect life and they don't want their heroes to be perfect they explain that life is full of up and downs, and we should manage to include all those in our storylines. So he was really open about it. And when I met him, so he's, he was one of the most important Nordic Noir writers. Uh, he's still, uh, to this day, one of the four top four names that you have to know in Nordic Noir, uh, with uh, Mai Cheval, Kerval, Stigdarsson, and Henning Mankel. You have those four, and then Yonesbu is quite uh, well-known as well. So he's really among the, the most important writers. You would expect him to actually be aware of fame and this fame uh, and to act in a certain way, you know, because when someone is famous, yeah, they tend to behave differently sometimes. But in his case, that was not the case, that he was absolutely down-to-earth, there were there was a huge queue of course waiting to get an autograph from him uh they wanted uh, they wanted him to sign the books and so on and he was the the queue was so long but also uh, not just because he was very famous but also because he was taking so much time each time into the to each person and not just like oh hi how are you oh great i hope you love the book and that's it he was really oh so um, what did you like in the book? And uh, sometimes he was commenting on the person's uh, outfit, like oh I like this coat. Uh, Where did you get it? Oh. <laughs> this kind of thing. So really, he was really human. And when I showed up, when it was finally my turn, I decided to talk to him in Swedish. And uh, but he's fluent. He, he was sorry, fluent in, in French. He, he was fluent in many languages actually. I decided to talk to him in Swedish. And of course, I was at the beginning of my studies. So what happened, of course, was that I made a couple of mistakes in the few sentences that I had spent so much time working on in my head. Of course, I made a few mistakes. And instead of just brushing it off or just pretending, no, he just stopped and explained to me which mistakes I made how to correct it and why. And I basically got a 5 minute, uh crash course in Swedish by Henning Mangel <laughs> when viewing. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that's how human this guy was. <laughs> I was so happy because you don't get that um, every day, you know.
0: <laughs> you definitely don't. Oh, that's that's such a lovely story. Oh.
1: <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So that's really how I just wanted to add this anecdote because I'm pretty sure that many people could we could do a, a collection of anecdotes and this would show that really he was he was a great person, a great writer, but also a great person. So yeah. And so his book before the first starts with a historical fact that. Honestly, uh, when I read the book, I was I I was not surprised because I'm not surprised anymore by anything, I think, in Nordic Mar now. But I was like, okay, like that, that's kind of maximum level right from the first page. (laughs) He's not even giving you time to get into the story. He's right away starting. With Johnstone, uh, Johnstown, sorry, Jim Jones, nine hundred pe- more than one, nine hundred uh, people dying, <laughs> killing themselves or being shot.
0: <laughs> you start from the deep end there.
1: Yeah. So yeah, he really starts with that right away, bringing history in a way it, it happened in seventy-eight. So yeah, it's history. <laughs> sorry for those born in, in the seventies. <laughs> your father history now (laughs) but uh yeah so he starts with that and just to quickly give some facts about this uh because this is also an interesting part of nordic noir writers in nordic noir know their topic very well they research it they use uh real facts quite often sometimes the lines between reality and fiction are really blurred as you mentioned and in his case he decided for this specific novel to get some inspiration from the massacre that happened in '78, and to build on that. I think it was, in a way, a sort of warning for us, um, because really the way he builds it and shows that it could happen in in Sweden, that it could happen anywhere, basically. So yeah, quick facts, uh, Jim Jones was a cult leader, let's say, active mostly between the 1950s until end of 1970s. He was mostly based in uh, San Francisco or near San Francisco. And he moved to Guyana, where he built out of nowhere. He basically bought some land from the government there. And this was a jungle, basically. And he built in the middle of that jungle a city called Johnstown. And all his followers, by that time it was around five thousand people following him and being part of this. They were called the People's Temple. That the cult was called like this, but well, it was the name. The name that people used. It was actually the wings of something, technically, but. Mm-hmm. The name that we keep in mind now is the People's Temple. So he he had actually a very good idea, which was to build a community where everyone would live in harmony. There would be no segregation, no uh, racism. He wanted racial and class equality. He wanted social justice. And yeah, he was against any form of segregation or anything like that. So... Technically, on paper, it seems amazing. Uh, especially in the 60s, um, in the U.S., quite a few people were interested in, in this. Of course, he, uh, with his wife, they they adopted uh, lots of children. They had one uh, natural son, son and or biological son, and then they also adopted lots of children. Most of them from Black Indigenous people of color uh, background. So you have a very idealistic, let's say, almost utopia that that was being built. And the problem is that his nature, uh, his his personality was that he was very manipulative, and not so many realized that. Uh, but also at some point. He lost control, basically. He started losing control. And this led to the massacre that happened on November 18 uh, in 1978. Two of his sons were not in Johnstown when that happened. They were playing basketball uh, in the capital city. And they, had, they, they tried to go, to go back because he called uh, one of his sons... And to tell him the code uh, that was used to say that they were going to do this revolutionary mass uh, suicide action. Mm -hmm. So they knew about it. They tried to go back. One of his sons actually had his wife uh, who was pregnant there and she died. So, And two of his sons are still alive to this day. And it's really, it's a very difficult uh, legacy, of course, but well. Uh, so 918 people died on that day, including around 300 children. Most of them, a large majority of them, died by drinking cyanide or being injected with cyanide. So that's, that's how you start the novel of Before the prose. <laughs>
0: yes, you do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and he builds on that. Uh, afterwards, with with the story of a, uh, of one of the survivors, Ben building his own cult.
0: Yeah, it, it's definitely a very, a very haunting tale, <laughs> both from the start and and even like the, um, the next sequence, and, and that's uh, that's something worth mentioning as well. Like especially for this novel, like animal cruelty, which, which is fairly graphic, but it's. It shows this level of Christian extremism, especially Christian, and some a lot of points about that. But I think it's a, one of the ways to understand and to take in, in, into account this, again, starting with, with Jim Jones and the Jonestown uh, massacre, is, is that there's no point or, or at no ethno point is is our main like antagonist or this uh survivor and, and follow following cult leader is he shown as like mad or unreasonable or irrational no it's all very calculated it's very rational very manipulative and yeah. the just the christian justification the theology that he creates is also incredibly horrifying um in the way that this and I quote like from him or one of his followers saying that the Christian awakening would only come to pass through bloodshed, that it is this fervor, that it is only via this violence, via this destruction of the other. And, I mean, one of the incredibly interesting aspects of the story is how we will unravel these plans and how we found out the very like the synchronicity because at one point they perpetrate certain public attacks and just the careful timing, the preparation, the fail-safes, it's all very careful. And that is a lot more terrifying because it's not just, and again, it's both a lot more interesting, more true to life and not both not applying to tropes and not misunderstanding aspects of like mental health. Uh, it's not like, oh, it's a, a lunatic that escaped or that is doing this violence. Or that is No, it's, it's someone who is incredibly good at manipulating people and at interpreting both and, well, repurposing Christianity and, and theology in a certain way that this violence, that this control, that this cult really makes sense in a very painful and terrifying way. Yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. The the fact that the the, the, the people who are committing those murders in any Nordic novel book it's not just this one, um they are never seen as insane. The the term insanity is is used by the police. For instance, Van der says to his uh, daughter, this is insanity. And she answers, no, this is faith. And this is really about faith and, and about really believing in something, in a in reality that is not the standard one, let's say, but uh, rather an alternative one and this is what is scary, of course, because anyone can be, anyone can have mental, uh, mental health issues, and it's not technically the problem. The problem is not that people would have mental health issues. The problem that is highlighted is that this guy who survived the Johnstown massacre doesn't get any help from anyone. So he's help is coming from himself and from the bible and he he ends up justifying he needs to justify what happened of course that's what happens with trauma you need to justify what happens and and you need to process it and so on and he's not getting any help and he his first follower is actually a a homeless person who used to be from the elites uh, in Norway but who ended up a homeless drug addict in the middle of nowhere in the U.S. And this is really a recurring theme uh, in all Nordic law, but in this one it's really highlighted that society does not help these people. This is how Nordic society perceives the police and the judicial system in general. It's not supposed to be a punishment, technically, but rather trying to uh, make sure that the person gets the help that they need. Uh, So we have lots of people saying that it's almost good to commit murder in in Norway, for instance, because you end up in one of those wonderful cells where you are treated like a human being. You get uh, enough space and so on. You're not in another crowded uh, prison like in many other countries. And this is all because... Nordic society considers that it is its duty to help people who are in need of help. And if they fail uh, to help them, and if this leads the person to commit something as serious as a crime, no matter what, whether it is uh, killing hundreds of people, or just uh, robbing a bank, or just stealing an apple somewhere, then it is. A failure of the society and the society has to help them to solve their problem so this is really shown in discussion between vanander and his daughter uh, that she tries to understand whereas he's just seeing this and saying this is insane and I-, I can't understand this and she's like actually trying to explain to him there is a rationality behind everything and And people should be helped. They're not crazy, insane weirdos that should be taken away from the society. that's That's something that is rather positive in in this, even though we cannot say that there is a happy ending, I would say, uh, in the case of this in before the frost, it it doesn't really end well. Let's say <laughs> that's typical of ending man doesn't want to have a typical happy ending.
0: So, yeah. It got me thinking, and I, I, I don't know to, to what aspect you, you both are aware well, or are comfortable to, to comment on this, but like this relationship, especially between Christianity in, at the very least, in Sweden, because in, in both of these books, uh, this this question comes up a lot more in Before the Frost but it's almost, at the very least, from the large majority of characters, there's either an ignorance or an indifference to Christianity, which, I mean, from a a very Catholic, but not just also very Christian country like uh, Brazil is a lot of the time, it's very, it's strange. And because it's, it's strange both in terms of context, but especially because as such a, core subject of of this book to have it by a lot of the characters having this estrangement with the subject it, it definitely raised several of my eyebrows a lot, or a lot of the time
1: yeah yeah definitely the topic of religion in Nordic countries could last for hours I could talk about it for hours but to explain a bit this situation the, the Nordic countries are most of the, well not most of them I would say like Around half of them are monarchies, and the others are republics. The monarchies, so Sweden, Norway, and Denmark, are Christian and mostly Protestant. Mm-hmm. The situation there is that I would, I would dare saying even that those monarchies that have an official state religion are more secular and yeah, much more inclusive and secular than, for instance, France, which is a republic known for being secular. Truth is that most of Nordic people, or most of Scandinavian people, I would say, are registered with a church. They are sometimes not even registered, but they still engage with religious activities. Uh, Myself, if I was living in one of those countries, I would probably engage with with some religious activities, even though I'm an atheist and agnostic and unbaptized, and <laughs> but still part of of the culture there is part of daily life, community life, and so on. So there is a lot of engagement with the church and church activities. Extra, but there is no. It's not necessarily a country where people are extremely enthusiastic about that believing in god and so on and they're not going to tell you to join uh, them as in religiously join them but more like this is a way to construct to build a community basically mm-hmm. how to see it however these churches have a terrific past it's awful what happened and this is related to of course the the presence of an indigenous population in finland sweden and norway in the north you have the Sami people who are indigenous in their land and they had and still have their own traditions their own religion let's say spiritual beliefs and so on and the official state church back then and when i say back then it's it's the this type of discrimination stopped in the 70s or yeah it's still quite recent but the the, the worst was happening in the 19th century when they decided to really destroy all traces of their pagan beliefs let's say as they were considering it they were afraid especially of Sami drums for instance so Sami people have these drums that are rather specific and they are using them to communicate with their ancestors or different spirits and so on. It's a spiritual tool and it's extremely important in their culture because without their without this link with their ancestors, it's as if it's destroying a, a drum, a semi-drum, for me is like destroying the grave of someone. It's the same. It's you need a place to have remembrance, memory and so on. You need a place for your ancestors and so many people have that through their Mm drums, Church, the state church, actually destroyed that. So when I see those biblical appearances in Nordic Noir, both in Stiglasen's first uh, book, we have the crimes, also the the murders are staged in a biblical way. And then uh, also in Before the Frost, we have the use of, of animals, by the way, animals because There is nothing more innocent than an animal. Children in Nordic Noir can be murderers. So that's important to keep in mind. So there there is nothing more innocent than an animal. So it's a way for, but they also to really appeal to absolutely everyone. Everyone would understand that when you see swans being burned alive, you're not going to, uh, you you cannot stay uh, watching this and not have any emotion. But when I see those biblical uh, elements being done in such a violent way, for me, it's also a way to, again, bring the past back, that religion in Nordic countries nowadays is rather peaceful, but it was not the case before. Mm. And to remind everyone that also, I don't know if it was willingly done like this by Henny Mankel, but for me, it reminds me a lot, a way to tell people we did that we we did these kind of things and by we i mean white christian people we went to other people's hands and we scared them with uh, rituals and so on that they had no idea about and we forced those onto other uh, onto them and and if they didn't comply they they were killed and so on. So the violence aspect is really, in, it's of course bringing the topic of religion. Henning Mankel was against religion, not against people having religion, but religion as an institution and religion uh, as being used in politics and so on. So uh, of course he was uh, also using this to criticize a lot. But the indifference or the, the distance is mostly to show that in, in Nordic countries, most people have this detached approach to religion. It's not something that is seen as divisive. But then when you dig a little bit further, you realize that it actually is. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's the problem.
0: <laughs> yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, no, I, as a, an interpretation of the way that like transposing this, Lived past into this present uh, as like, oh, it's it's a different version of the same thing done to us now that we perpetrated unto others. that is yeah. that makes a lot of sense,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is a lot of that of trying through symbols to show that Nordic societies are not uh, exempt from anything. Like, I like pretend to, to see that, like, at least represent them as an example. But yes, there is still religious violence. And what I like is that people are forced to think about it, about also their relationship with religion and their own faith if they, if they are not least. They have to realize that there are things written in the Bible and basically everything we do from that is through interpretation. And that's basically the history of religion. It's just interpretation of our interpretation and one interpretation winning against the other and so on. And it it's really a peaceful fight when there are two interpretations fighting. And this awakening, the, the aspect of awakening Christianity. In Nordic countries, it's a topic that is recurring also in Nordic now because there is this underlying topic that is not really covered in this book as directly as in other books, which is that the the right-wing parties in, in Nordic countries are trying to uh, use, of course, this discourse of proper Christian society being taken over by a bad Muslim other, and basically this is not very present in this book directly but it's still a criticism addressed towards those people who think that they, there needs to be an awakening to remind them that the current society is in many ways diverse and so on that there are christians and that. Maybe they're fine as they are, maybe we don't need in a way. And maybe the, the, even the concept of awakening it is maybe a bit stupid because it never fell asleep. There is no need to be worried. We still have the Vatican, we still have uh <laughs> we still have all religions very present in Europe and, and it's fine. So yeah, it's it's a criticism. But from Henning Mankell, I'm pretty sure there is also this aspect of him. Uh, trying to tell people, topic it with your religious madness. Religion doesn't matter. Religion replaces in this book. It's obvious. Religion replaces a therapist, for instance, or uh, a family, or uh, there is always someone missing in these people's lives, and religion fills that blank. And um, sometimes I. I'm hoping that it's only fiction sometimes, but I realize that it's it's really how many people end up joining a cult, not just religion, but even a cult, which yeah. could be dangerous. There is something missing, and the society is not um, providing this replacement. And, and people seek it in religion, and then they end up... Yeah, killing other people in this book, at least.
0: <laughs> yeah, religion is not a replacement for therapy or any type of approach on mental health. It can help, but on its own, like it's just. Yeah, I really found interesting because it's a very clear approach and open about this engagement with it. Because, well, I, <laughs> I, I, I consider myself a Catholic but of a very different and much more mellow or radical in a different direction than this one, um, this conservative one. But it's, it's an engagement and understanding that like there are a lot of different ways. And this has been done institutionally in various degrees, but even by a wide variety of people that you can use religion, that you can use the theology to, to commit violence, to commit atrocities to commit massacres to commit genocide of indigenous people throughout peoples throughout the world so it's an engagement like yeah this is this is what it can be done when weaponized because it can be weaponized so easily as it has been so yeah it's it's a very powerful portrayal of that and it's convincing again it's not It's not insanity, it's a very clear rationale, which is much more true to life and much more dangerous.
1: Yeah, yeah, and the fact that they, whether it is in Millennium or in Before the Frost, religion is systematically used as an excuse. Yes. It's really an excuse. Uh, You commit a murder, and in Before the Frost, it's even explained in a few pages that one of the murders happens unexpectedly. It's not supposed to happen. And I won't say which one, so that people who want to read the book <laughs> <laughs> can do so without having any spoilers. But basically, there is a, one of the murders happens unexpectedly and the reaction is to stage it as a biblical thing, whereas it's really not about religion at all. And this is also saying a lot about not just Nordic society, but absolutely all human beings everywhere using religion as a way to, to, to do something. And we see it happening everywhere currently, where people are using religion so that they can uh, move forward towards certain political um, laws and so on like these kind of things they use it politically and even sometimes after they do something they yeah. say yeah but it's because because everyone knows that you cannot challenge religion if someone has faith uh, you cannot challenge that it's not possible it's just it's something so personal and so intimate that you cannot challenge what people believe in um, when it comes to religion and so on when it comes to politics, it's it's different. It's an opinion. You believe that it's better to put money towards social welfare rather than giving it to big companies or the other way around. This is this is an opinion that you can actually have research on, on the religion and faith. You cannot ch- challenge anyone. Personally, I'm an atheist, but when someone tells me I'm Catholic, I'm I'm Protestant. Muslim and Jewish and okay fine, it's just I cannot relate, but I cannot challenge it either. Mm-hmm. Is he? <laughs> so it's really using this, and um, using a a justification that can hardly be contradicted. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think on these on these ways to justify these violences, I think that's a good transition into into our second book, which is, and to get it right out of the way, it, in English, it is the girl with the dragon tattoo. In French and Portuguese and other languages too, it is the men who didn't love women. But as you mentioned on that, the gothic class, the Swedish is actually closer to the men who hated women.
1: Yeah, yeah. In Swedish, it's men, hat- men som hatar which means men who hate women. It's really, an hatar is really, in Swedish, it's really a strong word. It's really hate, hatred.
0: And that is, uh, I, I went for those titles in an ascending order because the English one is so out of the way. At least the, the one that I came in contact with first was like, okay, it's, It's at least closer to the original if twisting it a bit, but the original title is a much stronger punch in the gut as the book is uh, from the very start. I mean, uh, talking about beginnings, like in between every uh, say, longer section or chapter of the book, there's a little, um, I don't want to say factoid, but like statistic of violence and violence against women in Sweden, in Sweden alone. And uh, it definitely sets the tone quite clearly because at that point, we don't know exactly or we have no clue where the book's going or what's going to happen. But it's like, oh, okay. So yes, this is what we're engaging with. And it becomes increasingly clearer and more obvious and more painful.
1: Yeah, for me, the the, the title sets the tone perfectly. And Sigrasson is, well, he used some things that uh, happened around him to write this book. For instance, the violence against women, he witnessed it multiple times. The main issue for him was the institutional the institu- institutionalization of violence against women. Even in Sweden, which is a country that everyone sees as sort of paradise for women and minorities and so on. But the truth is that there is still a lot of violence against women happening there. But also he used stories from abroad and brought it back into a Swedish context so that people would react in Sweden. Because it's very difficult to talk about the the case of women being kidnapped and tortured and raped and so on and this is happening in Australia in the US in in Southeast Asia and so on you you can talk about it as much as you want people will be like oh yeah it's bad indeed but if it's not happening next door in their street uh, they're not going to react they're not going to take action to to make this better, like to to improve the situation, they're not going to do anything. So uh, that's the social critic part uh, that Stiglarsson really took from the originals, Mai Chauvel and Per Valleux. Stiglarsson wrote these books in the 90s. uh, So very close to uh, the the Martin Beck series, which ended in 75 or Mm -hmm. 75, 80. Uh, So this was really close to it. Putting it into context is very important because he wrote it, we are reading it now, but he wrote it 30 years ago. So he, he really had a different world to live in and to talk about. Nowadays, the situation of women in, in Sweden is much better than it was in the 90s. Fortunately, it's, it's getting better and keeps getting better. But we have, we have two layers in this book, which is, well, actually three layers. We have the, the layer of the, the, the murders happening within the, the family that Mikhail Blomqvist is investigating. And then we have the layer of what the main character, Lisbeth Sander, went through when she was a child. And then we have the layer of what she is going through during the the events that we're reading about. So we have three layers of violence against women and girls. And I really say girls because there are some some minors who are uh, being killed or raped or assaulted. So this is really, really harsh as a topic. But what I like about Stieg Larson is that because he had a direct, well, rather indirect, let's say, direct but indirect experience with this. He was a man. You know, he was a white straight man. You would expect him to be incapable almost of writing about these topics without making some huge mistakes that such people could make. But when you read it, you really see uh, how he was so much in touch with these people who were being hurt, that he really managed to be an amazing spokesperson almost for for them. When I read those books, I really appreciate how thoughtful he was when talking about all those topics. He doesn't represent this best as a typical victim in Nordic Noir. Usually uh, in Nordic Noir, you have this very passive victim who is usually a, a woman or a child, it's really a passive role, and uh, that's it. In Millennium, you have a woman who is fighting back. Yeah. And who is fighting back on her own, with her own skills, her own brain. And then she finds an ally in, in Rungvist, And then they work together, and he pushes, he, he pushes her further. To, in the third book, he pushes her further, even. Uh, so to really get what she deserves, which, she, which is justice. But really, it's a completely different image of the woman being a victim and survivor. It's really going into this surviving discourse. And I really recommend it to... People who want to see something different. However, there are some cliches, including one that recently got me really mad, uh, which is about this secondary character, Mimi, the girlfriend of Lisbeth Allender. Well, they're girlfriends and best friends. It's, yeah, but yeah, she's an Asian character, and trust me, you will find all the. It's later in, in the second and third books, especially, that she appears. But you can take all the, all the cliches, unfortunately, which makes it almost uh, racist. But again, still, he was really trying to give some justice to um, the victims of the system and so on. And whether they were women or children... Or minorities because <clears throat> Lisbeth Sander is bisexual, so it's also covering that, which is unusual. Now there are more more uh, main characters in Nordic noir being uh, more diverse, but it's quite recent. Uh, he was kind of one of the first to really make the main character really that diverse.
0: Yeah, and and so uh, so unapologetically, because how how else do you, do you portray it? And it's. Elizabeth is certainly a really interesting and really fun character. And just the way she even, as you put it, like she fights back on her own terms. And she is, I mean, one of the things that, that happens and that we're told in the book is that she is, as you're mentioning, like these, this institutional violence, because she is in. Um, because of her experiences in childhood and her, I don't know how I put it, like just her attitude or posture a lot of the time, she is seen in the, as a condition of like tutelage where she is needs to be sort of monitored or protected or guarded by the state. And we see her engagement with that, her her interiority a lot of the time handling that. And it's like, even in moments of more violence we see we see someone struggling to understand to fight back to come into her own really and it's yes she is a victim in a few moments or in certain situations but that that is uh shall we say like uh temporary passing situation that's she's not defined as victim she's defined as elizabeth salander with all else that she does and believes and acts or wants to do and it is one of the most interesting mo- most fascinating characters that i've read in a long time like she is very 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 nuanced and really interesting to read to follow to learn so yeah, I, at the very least, on her, it's um, it's really interesting, and oh, before to, to sort of start tying this uh, this point because we mentioned before, like this justification when she starts getting involved in, in the murders and understanding them, she puts it quite brilliantly. That's like, oh, it's not a biblical justification. It's not religion. It's not, this is some a man who hates women, period. It's just like, yeah, that that is what it is. Like you 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 can't really you can try, but you're not going to su- succeed at denying that. It is <laughs> that awfully simple. These are men who hate women and are acting upon it,
1: yeah, yeah. that's that's a, that's a line that I really like from her, uh, because especially it's like she she even uses something like some jerks or something like that. really bad vocabulary in, in Swedish. is really there. For her, these people, these men, are like not even worth getting justice. It's She does her own justice, in a way, in different ways. There is a rather physically violent way that she uses, um, but uh, there is also the, the financial way and the corruption aspect and so on. And what I like also is that she... She goes through a lot and she reacts in certain ways, but usually in most other novels, or in films with these kind of characters, you feel bad for them and then you feel happy because they got justice. But in this case, you're really in a mixed feelings kind of state of emotion. You don't know, You you keep thinking, yeah, okay, so it's bad, definitely what happened to her. But then you're like, Yeah, but she's doing well. She's doing quite well actually. She manages to get her life together somehow. And yeah, she even manages to do something that she's always dreamed of and and she travels and so on. So <laughs> you're feeling bad for her, but at the same time she's taking care of things. So that you you're like, well, actually she's fine. And then you you feel happy in a way that she gets justice, but you're still left with yes, but she did her own justice. It's illegal and immoral in many ways what she does. So because she's a hacker, so for instance, whenever she does something, like the information she gets and so on, she gets it illegally. So yeah, it's hard to feel just good about what happens or just bad. And this is part of Nordic Noir, blurring the lines all the time so that there is no um, good or bad. It's never that easy. And in real life, it's never that easy. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah.
0: yeah. There are no, no easy answers. And Nordic Noir definitely like, so you, this is the character you want you to like. and we I'm uh, 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 making you like them. Yes, and yet that's what they do. Hmm. how do you feel?
1: (laughs) Exactly. How do you feel now? And when when Nordic Nord authors don't do it like and they do it by being like, oh, so you like this guy? Really? Well, breaking news, he's an alcoholic and a drug addict. How do you feel now? (laughs) (laughs) And I like that because it makes you realize that we tend to judge people. On things that are not maybe all, always relevant and that it's more, much more complex and in the case of Vista what I like also is that she has that is something that I just started looking into so I'm just going to give a small hint but according to me she's not just a hacker she's not just This modern woman who is strong and sound. I think there is something more to it. And Larsson was using Nordic folklore and Nordic folklore elements to, to redefine, let's say, the woman as something else than what we understand. Because, well, Millennium has a woman who is a victim, and what makes her even Less of a typical character, let's say, is that she is very skinny, she doesn't have breasts, and she has very short hair. So basically, if you see her in the streets, you might think she's a man. And this is very important, brewing the line and song. And for me, this brings this uh, character very close to some folklore elements of. How to portray women in a scary way for people. We used to do it differently in the 19th century and so on, with witches, etc. But her character is specifically really close to how the spirit of the forest was, was defined. And, well, the, the physical description doesn't match in many ways but what matches is that when you see Lisbeth Salander in the street, most people might actually change the side of the street they're walking in, <laughs> and they might join her. We see that in the films, in the Swedish films, it's quite well shown in those, in those films. Uh, not so much in the, the American film. I will just say that I do not recommend the, the American adaptation. Because of many aspects that I find disappointing, one of them being the the fact that they portray the rape scene as a usual Hollywood thing, whereas the description made in the book—you uh, read it once and that's it. You won't read it twice. It's really, it's really graphic and it's really uh, from this, from the perspective of the victim. And it's really um, very close to to what people might experience and so on. So it's really a difficult part. and the the revenge that she gets comes later in the book, and even in the in the Swedish film, there is a bit of length uh, between those two moments. And so you don't have like the stressful moment, and then right away the happy moment, whereas in the, the, the American film, they do it right away. And this, this is not good because you have to think about, you have to think about it a bit more. The point of Stiglarsson in, in this part, for this part of the story is to say, there should be another way. And this Vetsalander should feel confident calling the police. She should be sure that if she goes to the police, the police will help her and that she will get compensation and so on and that the rapist will be convicted. But she does not have that certitude. And we see in the third book that it's for good reason. But really, it's this is the point of, of Millennium, showing that society And and the state does uh, both of these do not have the back of women and minorities and children. No matter what they say, no matter what they advertise, they don't give decent protection to these people. And that the men who are enabled are enabled by not just a few silent ones, but by an institutional system and this is also the case in the situation with children when you mention tutelage and so on children in Nordic countries are protected of course in many ways but um, the laws have lots of uh, loopholes let's say and it's very how to explain this it's it has two faces on one side you can see that of course if there is any problem uh, children know that they can call the police or call any any social worker or even just say something to their teacher or to anyone in the street, and they will call social services. And the first thing that they will do, that social services will do, is to separate the children from the parents if something happens, like family uh, violence and so on. Uh, if domestic violence happens, that's the first thing they do. They remove the children from the potentially dangerous environment, which is great, but the truth is that it means that you're putting a lot of responsibility on the shoulders shoulders of children who, because that's the part that these policies forget, you can have a violent, like you can have violent parents and still love them because they're your parents and you don't want to be separated from them. And the separation would be also a trauma. The the violence is a trauma, but the separation from them is also a trauma. So this creates uh, an issue already. Then, and I don't have answers for that. I I just mentioned the problem. I don't know how to solve it, of course. I'm not an expert in that. Then you have another issue, which is because of this... Because of this pressure, lots of children are not reporting things that they should report because they're scared of what could happen. They're scared that their parents might end up in jail and that they might never see them ever again. And then you have the issue of what do you do with the children that are taken away from their families? Uh, You put them to care. You put them in other families and so on. But the system of foster care and so on, I don't think there is any system like that that properly works in the entire world, and you always have abuses happening, and of course, children end up being the victims of this. So, yeah, the Nordic system, Nordic society seems to be protecting children, etc. but there are lots of flaws in their laws. And also, last aspect is children who are from minorities or ch- challenged uh, backgrounds, uh, social backgrounds, these people, these children, they don't have access to that. For instance, if there is violence in a family from coming from immigration, lots of these people don't have access to social services the same way a proper Swedish person would have, oh. you know? So um, you have increased risk of violence because they don't have access to lots of things, because they are, they are discriminated against, creates a, 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 the perfect situation where you might have more violence and so on. And these children don't have access to this. They are often overlooked by the social services and so on because the state is not in contact with them in a protective way. And we've seen that time and time again in Nordic countries where you have people who are, well, more and more now we have uh, Nordic people reacting strongly to it. But you have the states are really repressive towards immigration. They send back people to their home country when they shouldn't. Uh, There was even a case when a man was sent back to his home country and within a couple of weeks he was killed. So really, this is another loophole. Children are protected in a certain way, but if we don't protect the parents of these children, we're not protecting the children either. So we need a much more inclusive system that... Would protect everyone and that would understand also cultural differences because what is seen as violence in Nordic countries, violence against children, can include up to just uh, saying, for instance, if you don't do your homework, you will not uh, go play with your friends. And this is a threat, technically. So for, for some Nordic people, it's violence. It's, it's manipulation, it's violence, and you shouldn't do that. Whereas for some people coming from other countries, violence is physical violence. And just and for some people, even some physical violence might be justified, depending on where they come from and so on. And Nordic people tend to forget that they were also violent towards children before. And they had to learn how to... <laughs> the state was actually making advertisements <laughs> to show to people how to... Uh, how to educate their kids without using violence, you know. Uh, in the 60s, 70s, this this was the thing. <laughs> so you don't need to hit your child if they do something. <laughs> yeah, you can actually <laughs> talk to the child and so on. And I saw it happen in front of my eyes. I saw lots of Nordic people with their children spending sometimes hours on Arguing over whether uh, they, the child should wear a jacket or not because they could not force the child, they could not, it's not possible for them. So they end up spending hours discussing it. It's really funny, but, um, but yeah, I come from France and in France, you, you have some violence against children that would be unacceptable in, in Nordic countries. So I'm not saying we should accept Uh, this physical violence or whatever but yeah it's also something that they should take into account that there is a need to understand that there is a transition when you're coming from abroad and you have to get into that so yeah and I think the the story of Ms. Bethsander is not touching all of that but it's a little bit about that she Mm -hmm. gets violent and she's misunderstood because nobody tries to understand children um, yeah yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah no that was um i didn't know as pretty much anything about that but it's there's a process there and, and um understanding diversity doesn't mean in, in these this coming from different backgrounds and different cultures and these other aspects doesn't mean like that they're necessarily better or, or acceptable even but it's like as you said, there's the transition, and that's important to understand when handling these uh, institutionally. I think we we've been through pretty much everything that we or the the most important aspects. But there's one that you mentioned or or, or uh, commented on the the outline that I want to ask about these uh, the, these folklore elements.
1: Yes, so there is the aspect of as I mentioned Lisbeth Sandor for me is a spirit of the forest in many ways. so this for in case there are some Nordics listening to us, I'm talking about uh, the 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 character in folklore of Hyldra or schools so this this is one element that I'm looking into currently, how this character is represented. There is another um, aspect, so It's in another Nordic world, but I mean, already in in Before the Frost, the the fact that it's called Before the Frost is basically rooted in in some folklore and um, traditional popular beliefs that you have to, you, you shouldn't start anything big, let's say, in that transition period. Mm-hmm. when it's between autumn and winter when you're not sure because everything is in between and so on and this is where uh, this is a period when spirits are coming out and they can trick you into doing things and so on so you should not make big decisions during that period and vanander's daughter uh linda keeps saying oh the once once the first frost will happen I can start working, I can do this, and so on. And it's really already quite here. And then outside of those two books, there is, if anyone wants to look into more like TV shows instead of books, um, you have Scott, which is literally Nordic noir, but with a lot of folklore uh, aspects. So it, the, the plot happens in Northern Sweden, and it's all about the fact that there are trees everywhere and what's happening under those trees and what's happening in the forest when it's dark and, and other spirits there and so on. And what happens when humans start cutting trees and start destroying basically this environment, this ecosystem and so on. And how do the spirits feel? So in your scotch, you have lots of folklore, I won't say more, but even the main characters are all into folklore and so on, it's really, and I say folklore because it's not mythology, mythology is more like the gods and so on, with all uh, Norse mythology and so on, but really this is folklore, so popular beliefs and that you shouldn't, like, if you walk through, uh, for instance, in the forest if there is a circle in which there is no tree and it's a natural thing it's not man-made you shouldn't cross that because there are some fairies that are going to do something to you you have all those beliefs and so on in in Celtic culture as well in in Nordic the, uh, culture they have their their own fair share of those so I think that one topic that was that has been so far under uh, or overlooked by researchers because they focused a lot on the social critic aspect and um, the the women, violence against women, violence against children, etc. Which is very important, of course, but I think one topic has been overlooked and it's folklore and the fact that these people were writing, having in mind heroes, the, the reason why those heroes are very different from what we're used to elsewhere is because that are rooted in a different literature, in different literary um, cultures and traditions. And this is also shown in in the Finnish uh, version of Nordic Noir with uh, Lena Lechtolainen. She writes in a way that has been described many times as feminine, but sorry, look at other women writing Nordic Noir, and it's not necessarily feminine, it's just Lena Richterleinen has behind her a, li- a literature that is very romantic, very close to nature, very close to, it's the Kalivara and so on. It's really epic and, and beautiful and so on. So of course she's going to write like this. And this shows how very complex this Nordic Noir thing is, and it's not just about murders. Murders are the actual murders and the, the investigation—it's honestly ten percent of the book.
0: <laughs> true, true. But yeah, I think I think that's a really interesting and frankly unexpected as aspect to like end on on this on this question of folklore on how these backgrounds and these elements are, are also there. And um, I mean, all, all the best of your research, and I'm really intrigued. But yeah, is there anything else that you want to mention or something that we missed or that you want to comment about?
1: Mm, Looking at my own notes, just to make sure. Yes, maybe one thing about Mm -hmm. the left-wing and diversity aspect. Just to close this, Mm -hmm. I chose two authors that show lots of things just with who they are um, as human beings, as I mentioned. But uh, in the case of Sig I would like to add that he's one of the few Nordic authors who who was coming from the social class that they are supposedly so much about. So he was from a popular class uh, background, not from middle class. Most of the authors are from middle class. They have university education and so on. Whereas he, did not manage to get into journalism school. And he, he tried to get into this school, but he failed. And he was raised mostly by his grandmother because his parents were living in Stockholm in a very small flat most of the time during his childhood uh, because they could not afford a bigger flat. And so they sent him to his grandmother's place. Which was in near Umiu, in the north. So this character, well, this author is also could also be a character of Nordic noir. He's actually from the popular class, and it's an exception. There is another one, a woman. I forgot her name, but she was also uh, writing in the seventies, and she was coming from this popular background as well. But apart from these two, it's quite rare that you have this diversity in terms of social background among the authors, and most of them are white people. Most of them, for now, are straight people. Most of them are basically not diverse, and you see it in the books. In uh, there are some uh, that are making some efforts. So, for instance, you see atle Olsen, a Danish author who included uh, a Syrian refugee as one of the main characters and a woman as well as one of the main characters so yeah but it's taking time Mm -hmm. (laughs) so yeah
0: yeah no definitely an important point to mention as we sort of wrap it wrap this up I think yeah a a lot of interesting and important questions about this literature what it is doing what it has done and where it's where it still has to go
1: yeah (laughs) (laughs) definitely I hope that there will be more uh, diverse authors because yeah we actually when I took part in in a book talk uh, some months ago we were among the attendants we were asking each other's Can you think of one character in Nordic Noir who would be Black? And it was very difficult to find one. And we were like uh, quite a few thinking about it. So yeah, Uh, more diversity, please. If there are any authors out there who want to wander into this noir genre, you can make it into any culture. I'm starting to look into Central European Noir. So really, yeah, do your thing and bring some diversity.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Please. (laughs) So yeah, uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Meva. Where, uh, one of the most important questions, where can people find you, your work, and how can people support you?
1: Well, uh, most of where they can find me is on Twitter. At uh, Halloween, I have a weird username, but yeah, so you can find me on Twitter, and if you're in, in Europe, especially in Central Europe, we might also <laughs> find, <laughs> find each other at some point. <laughs> mm-hmm. And how to support me, I would, I mean, I do have some coffee link, but I would rather uh, currently ask you to donate if you can to um any cause related to those topics that we mentioned so yeah donate this money to charities helping women helping minorities uh to make this world a little bit better for everyone yeah
0: that sounds (laughs) that sounds perfect i i uh yeah i i agree (laughs) So yeah, thank you. Thanks again. It it has been an honor and a pleasure, really, to 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 read, to learn some more, and to chat with you about it. From our side of things, you can find us on Twitter at Left Pod, and a lot of my own thing at Frank Gothic, if you can. But again, I think, especially given these times, please do support these institutions of support, of relief, and assistance. If you can, like it's definitely crucial, uh, a crucial part of it too. Uh, but you can find some of the extra content that I have, and quite a bit of it is open as well uh, on patreon.com forward slash left page, where we do some occasionally do some work on poetry. And I write a couple of things either on fiction or nonfiction monthly, just as some extra things that I've been thinking, writing, reading about. But yeah, uh, this has been a an absolute blast uh thank you so much everyone thank you for listening and thanks again Maeva. this has been a lot of fun
1: thank you thank you for inviting me it was great talking about all this thank you